back to Gene Shepard at the Village Limelight. This is WOR Radio, your station for news. MS, multiple sclerosis, is the great crippler of young adults. MS is a disease of the central nervous system affecting movement, speech, vision, and balance. There is no cure, but there is hope through research. Your contribution can help discover that cure. Give generously to the MS volunteer. Easy now. Isn't it exciting? It's alive. <laughs> All right. Ain't swank play. Seek hail. Well, while we were while we were back at the studio for the for the uh, news break, there there was a, a small but very angry delegation of ladies who rose as one lady and said, "No baseball stories." <laughs> Men, are we going to stand for that? No. Shall we just 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 this once exercise and exert our independent spirit and tell one rotten baseball story just to show them who's boss? <laughs> Come on, shall we, gang? I mean, I mean, admitting we all hate baseball and thinking they're rotten, but doing it for what it means, right? (laughs) Boo! By the way, friends, uh, have you noticed, uh, I don't know why they're speaking of baseball. She just did it. Uh, Speaking of baseball, have you noticed now that as you listen to baseball and watch it on television, have you noticed how long it's been since you've heard a real full-throated full crowd boo where the whole crowd of 28,000 people boo right out of the guts of disgust and disdain have you noticed you don't hear that anymore you don't hear you know when 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 on the Yankees uh, Tom Tress hits into a double play at a crucial moment Mel Allen saying well you can't win them all <laughs> you don't hear what you know that, that full throated boo that's because we are in the day fully, completely, and thoroughly. We're in the day of the nice guy. We really are. The nice guy, he, re- he refuses to boo today. Do you know that in many countries that gave way to dictatorships of one kind or another, before they did, there was a period of nice guyism. And so that when the rising demagogue got up, nobody booed. They just politely clapped, you know. Well, everybody's entitled to his opinion. They walked away. As they left the meeting that was addressed by A. Hitler, J. Goebbels, (laughs) they went home. Well, how would you like that tonight with amnesty, we're declaring an amnesty on the audience. Have you noticed that the audience in, say, a a show like, uh, oh, like the Johnny Carson show, that every time the camera goes down into the audience, everybody's clapping. There's not one sore head in the crowd. It's, oh, what a rotten show. Oh. oh, just as they pick him up, you know. Everybody, when he's on, somehow, you, you'd be surprised how your brain goes to sleep the minute you walk into a television studio, really, and you applaud stuff that's just rotten. And, 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 and they say, well, now we're going to pick up the audience. They pick it up, and everybody's waving happily. And they hate being there. All right, now, all together, how about one, before we go into this next hour, how about one clinker-clearing, ashes-cleaning-out boo? 
W.O.R., you know, recognizes the fact that it has to give genuine public service. <laughs> I mean, recruiting the Marines on those little 30-second spots is not enough, you know. And it, it, it has sent me down here as a bona fide hate figure. I'm a hate object. Other people are love objects. Parr was a love object. I'm here to be hated. So come on, let's hear that boo. Yes, boo. Boo. <laughs> Doesn't that feel good now? It's funny, I'll tell you. I, I, uh, I, I you know, it's funny. Uh, hardly anybody, while we, were, while we were here in the middle of this little break, I asked them what they wanted to hear, what stories you want to hear. And nobody asked me to tell stories about the business that I'm in. If you notice, no one said, tell a radio story. There must be some wild stuff goes on at night when the lights go out in the studio and they're having auditions. <laughs> well, there is some wild stuff goes on a radio, but it isn't exactly the way you think it is. And if, if, if you don't object too loudly, I will tell you a story of radio. You know, all performers, I don't care who they are, Tell stories about things other than what they're really in, because somehow you got to keep the mask between you and the audience. You really do. So Shelley Berman tells stories about the actor calling up his home. He doesn't tell you stories about how it feels to do a nightclub act before a group of angry ice cube rattlers in Pittsburgh. <laughs> that would be the story, wouldn't it? And and. Actors never tell you, you know, how it really feels to act. They always tell you, oh, yes, it was a pleasure working with Henry Fonda. And there's uh, nothing more exciting than to work with a good director. Why, Mr. Kazan, I remember, and never once do they tell you of those long, rotten, crummy afternoons with the sun beating down on you, and they're shooting the scene over after over after over because this idiotic star gets up there and forgets his lines falls down, knocks the furniture down, till finally you want to throw a hand grenade right in the middle of the cameras and blow it all up. And this happens every five minutes on a movie set. Are you aware of that? I've done a lot of nightclub work. What do you think this is now? Right here, in front of this audience. And I'll tell you how a nightclub performer prepares. Now, Preparing is one of the most important aspects of all performing arts. Doing it is comparatively simple. Once you have prepared, do you know the difference between a really good ball player and one who isn't is not muscles. It's not reflexes. You notice when those guys are down there in the on-deck circle and you see Roger Maris down there like this? It's the attitude that he's got towards the pitcher and what he's about to do. That's called preparation. And he's down there. You notice this, this kid rookie is down on the on-deck circle. He looks great. He's got a big number eight on his back. He's got a, a uniform that says Yankees. He's got one of those helmets. And he's down there and he's got the dirt, you know, and he's kicking it around. You know, and he's got the bat and then he stands up with a couple of big ones, you know, and he swings it back and forth, you know, this big sweep like this. Gets down again, tosses one of them aside looks out there and out on the mound is Juan Pizarro 
Well, Juan Pizarro is about as close to a true primitive man on the mound as you can get. Huge, hulking. He's got a magnificent, slow, easy, sweeping motion, and he's got a fastball that is a blur. Just ding! It goes in there. And this kid is watching. And of course, old Mick is standing up there, big number seven. And he bends back like he always does and sort of stands up there. He's got the right attitude. Whatever that attitude is, boy, it's awful hard to have. And Pizarro is up there, you know, he's getting his sign. And Pizarro's got the right attitude too, right, Marty? His attitude is, watch this guy. He can always see little skulls and crossbones all over Mickey, you know? Poison, don't touch. See, it's the kind of stuff you want to throw. Oh, there's a, it's not hate. No, it's not hate. You know, everybody says, if I hate my opponent, I'll win. No, no. Something else. And so big old Juan looks down there, and big old Mick looks down there. The two of them look, and both recognize the right attitude. And that's when Pizarro decides to walk Mickey. <laughs> and... See, because if there's anything Pizarro is, he's a pro. <laughs> Not only is he a pro, he is also a man who will come back to pitch again tomorrow. See? Well, up comes the rookie. He's just come up from Rochester. And this kid, you know, he's six feet nine. He was the star hitter at the University of Michigan, batted 748, three seasons in the Big Ten. Got that big number on his back, and he walks up. Mel Allen says, here comes young, uh, uh, he doesn't even know his name yet, you know. Here comes young, uh, really looks good down there. And hold white. say, hey, hey, Phil, what's this guy's name, for God's sake? Hey, looking up. <laughs> uh, here comes, uh, yeah, uh, Big John is up there. And, and John is, he looks exactly like Mickey. He gets up there, you know, that big widespread stance, flips his, you know, that stretch. Juan looks down. That's when Juan decides to experiment. <laughs> He's always wanted to throw a fadeaway slider in combat, and he knows he can get away with it this time. Maybe even a blooper ball. Well, it's that matter, um, and this is not a baseball story, this is a story of preparing, honey. Oh, you understand. Eh. Eh. So the preparation for anything is 99% of the real thing. You get seven guys sitting in a, in, a, in a row at a racetrack. All of them are in Offenhauser racers, Curtis Craft frames. All the cars are built by the same guy at Indianapolis. You know that? Tuned by the same mechanics. They got the same gas, the same... And somehow that announcer says, of course, today's favorite is A.J. Foyt. Why is Foyt the favorite? Well, when Foyt gets into that car, settles himself down, throws the belt over, pulls his helmet down, looks around. All these other guys are sitting behind that 490 horsepower, too. They got a big number 17 on the side. Foyt's got a big number 63 on the side. And they sit there. They're waiting for the flag. And sure enough, there it comes. 33 cars go, they take off. They make that first turn, you know, all in unison. They all make it in formation. Then they head down the last open stretch, that little practice lap. The crowd applauds in the stands. And now it's A.J. Foyt against the crowd. 
that is no longer 33 cars, <laughs> boom, they leap, and boom, there's Foyt sitting there, just riding. All the other guys are driving. <laughs> there is a big difference. It has never been recorded that Mickey Mantle has ever once been nervous about the hit. Little spit. Looks out, that sign says 415 feet out there. Spits again and steps in. Have you noticed even when Mantle strikes out, he get mad, throw the bat, he goes, Mantle will live to bat again. Juan Pizarro knows it. One strikeout of Joe DiMaggio is nothing. Strike Big John out, and it's the beginning of a long series of strikeouts. <laughs> it's a big difference. So here's what a nightclub comic does. When you're preparing as an actor, and you're getting ready to go out on that stage, every, you know, it's funny how many people think, gee, how do they, how do they know the lines? How can he remember all those lines? Two and a half hours of talk, and they can remember it all. Wow. To the uninitiated, that seems the hardest thing in acting. Have you noticed that? The first thing they say, wow, how do you remember them lines? I can tell you this is an actor. That's the first question people say. Wow. Another thing they'll say is, gee, don't you ever feel embarrassed standing up in front of all those people like that? That's another question. Well, they never ask you the right one. The right one is how do you get into that strange frame of mind, that, that cloud around you, that peculiar kind of transparent and yet impenetrable glass shield that gets around you, that when you move out there, you radiate, look at me. You don't even have to say a line. Have you noticed that, that a good actor comes out on the stage, he, he, he's got a little bit part. And he walks out there, he says, I am here. And he really is. And here's another guy who's learned all the techniques. He stands the same way. He's got the same buskin and the same jerkin and the same whooping and the same spear. He comes out and it's like he's made out of cellophane. He walks out there and stands there. And there is a resounding silence. Interesting. Why? That's called preparation. Now, some people never can prepare. <laughs> and all they can do is learn how to stand right or hold the thing out. That's called technical acting. They learn that at this certain point, you say, get me the horse. <laughs> you know, it's all a ballet dance. It's nothing to do with action. The other guy says, get me the horse. Hey. And he's a terrible actor. The voice is bad. He can't pronounce the words right. But boy, you want him to get a horse quick. <laughs> There's an actor, see? Well, this is all... I'm giving you some inside dope on acting. It's a truth. And, and don't say, well, gee, I can't... Understand. Louis Armstrong has got the worst voice in the Western world. <laughs> he has. But boy, you can't stop listening to him. That's right. When Louis gets up and says, baby... Every chick in the room, there's a little funny thing happens. He is saying, baby... You know, there's a big difference, and it's subtle, extremely subtle. Well, preparation of all kinds is important. How do you think Mr. Bullard got to be Bullard? Because he knew more about cost accounting? Because he knew more about politics? Forget it. 
The average male boy can out-politic Bullard 15 ways coming from Saturday. And yet Bullard is running the show. What happened? Well, how many of you guys working in your jobs, I don't care where you work, Young and Rubicam, the Bolton Rivet Shop, have run into this son of a gun that the employment office sends down who arrives who's like that actor. All of a sudden, the department, there is a strange thing that says, Charlie's here. And you know secretly this son of a gun is going to kill everybody. He's going on his way up. And everyone invents stuff. Well, he's rotten, you know. That son of a gun, oh boy. Anyone can get to the top that way. Look at him, boy. Look at him kissing the boss. Yeah. <laughs> everybody in the office has been doing it for years, you know. Please, boss, let me kiss your foot, boss, please. Somehow this son of a gun walks in. He doesn't kiss the boss's foot. Within ten minutes, the boss is kissing his. And that really bugs people. Next thing you know, he's out on the yacht with, with the big guy, and five weeks later, it is no longer Charlie. It's C.J. Bullard. And, of course, everybody then for years says, I knew that guy when he was a male boy. Let me tell you, he's nothing. Male boy, I knew that guy. And everyone's secretly afraid that he's going to come down into the apartment and say, You're right, Fred. I knew you when I was a male boy. You were a rotten male boy. Then you're still a rotten male boy. And walk back. Preparation. It's all preparation. Some guys prepare from the time they're three to be big. Doesn't matter what they learn. They can learn anything. I don't care. They, they become a nuclear scientist. They have learned to be the head of the laboratory. Preparation. Sneakiness. Well, the difference between a good nightclub performer and one who is not is that whole aura that is created between the audience and those sitting out there that says, I've got something to tell you. And then he tells you this bad joke. Doesn't make any difference. You want to hear it. You say, tell us another one. Tell us another one, Charlie. And then he says, well, it was this chicken crossing the road, see? And the chicken went across the road. And uh, I said, chicken. <laughs> and he says, tell us another one. Tell us another one. On and on and on. He's got bad material. But he's a fantastic comic. What is it? I'll tell you. Most comics, and I have worked plenty of nightclubs, prepare before they get on. They're like tigers. An actor is like a tiger. I am always convinced in all the plays that I've done, when there's this guy sitting in his dressing room, you know, and he's looking over his lines, there's a bad actor. He's looking over his lines five minutes before the play the curtain goes up he's bad then you see one other guy you see another guy like this he's out by the water cooler he's going back and forth he's getting lower and lower you just see him see he's back there and you hear the curtain you hear the, the orchestra the, wah, 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 wah. he's back there like this wah, 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 wah. and then boom, bop, bop, bop. I am here and you watch him from the wings and you know damn well he's here and they know it and he goes on with this terrible play and it's a smash smash hit well you know how a comic does it i don't know whether you people are aware of it you probably heard people say it in passing but the audience in a nightclub is not really an audience it's the enemy it really is the enemy 
When a guy goes to the theater, you know, he's sitting down there in that great big auditorium. The proscenium arch is over here. The actor's protected by the institution, theater. And so you're sitting 47 rows back there and you hate it. How many of you have ever turned to your friend and says, Hey, Charlie, let's talk about the pinochle game, huh? You know, Charlie, blah, blah, blah. And everybody, never, you don't do this, you see, in a theater audience. Because it's the theater. Let me tell you what happens in a nightclub comics performance. He's up on the stage and he's doing his best bit of material. He starts out and he knows it's not right. He knows he hasn't prepared right. Something is wrong. The cab broke down on the way to the place. He had an argument just a little bit too soon before he came on. His mind is not completely there. Not quite, totally, all the way. I don't know how to explain it to you if you've never been a performer. He knows his material. He doesn't forget it. He's great. His timing is perfect. What is it? And so he's up there. And he says, you know, folks, I'll never forget one time on the south side of Chicago. I'm walking down the street, see? <laughs> oh, Manny, I'm walking down the street. And he looks out there and he sees this blonde, the kind that always digs his stuff, wearing the silver fox, you know, with the long, thin cigarette lighter and all that stuff. She is leaning forward and she's asking somebody for the salt. <laughs> he never once, you know, you don't even get the flicker. He says, and so I said to the guy that was with me, I says, for crying out loud. And then he turns around and somebody's saying, hey, uh, waiter, waiter. Woo. Not only has he met the enemy, but the enemy is infiltrating. <laughs> they are coming up on the stage. And that's what they're doing, you know. And within five minutes after he's on, it's like he's on a stage. It's like he's in the middle of a cocktail party. He's got no pants on. <laughs> he's the wrong color. He's something. He's walking around, and all these people are just bumping him, nudging him. See? And so he gets frantic. He says, and, uh, and uh, Charlie, I was... Uh, he starts talking real fast. Have you ever noticed a comic starts going real fast? And he starts being... Hey, and then he starts talking to the guys in the band. That's the next move. You know that? That's always the next move. They're my friends. And so he says, how about that, Fred? Give me the drum. Boing, boom. He kicks the drum, you know, walks back. And five minutes later, he's back in his dressing room to the mild applause. Sick. And he sits back there. Another 20 minutes, they are now, he hears the doors open, and he hears another enemy squad is infiltrating, coming in. They're letting in the next bunch. This bunch, the last bunch were just playing Wehrmacht. This bunch is the SS they're letting in. You know, he knows it, and, and the night is shot. Forget it. Once you're dead, you're dead. Well, that, that is an interesting problem. And I don't know whether or not you know anything about how, or m most people, most performers, by the way, speaking of problems, what station is this, friends? Yes! Go on, go on, go on, go on! Yes, New York, that's where we are, the big time here. WOR, AM and FM in friendly old New York, your concern station. Well... How do you think a radio performer pre prepares? He's got an even more subtle enemy. The enemy is himself. Because he himself is his own audience. The world that he creates is a total world in his mind. He doesn't even have a play. He doesn't have the institution of theater. 
He doesn't have any of these things. And so radio performers are rare, by the way. There aren't many radio performers. There's a lot of announcers. There's a lot of people who use radio, but very few performers. Jack Fanny was a radio performer. Fred Allen was. And how you prepare to get them to listen is fascinating. And in fact, the other night, I was reminded of it. And the reason I'm telling you this story is that I am driving up in Maine. I got this little car, you know, and it's got a radio. And I'm on tape back here in New York City. And I, I never listen to myself when I'm on tape. That's a very peculiar experience. Some people can't get enough of themselves. I know actors who have watched 23rd reruns of a bad show they did when they hated themselves. They got to see it, you know. Somehow many an actor doesn't believe he's alive until he sees himself in the thing. And, and he feels reassured. I don't have that feeling. I can't stand hearing myself. And so one night I says, well, okay. And so I tune on the radio and there I am going away, see, and I'm talking. And it's like I'm listening to somebody else. And I got drawn into it. <laughs> I want to kill a son of a gun, you know? And I'm saying, no, no, it's not like that, you idiot. What are you? No, no that's me. That's me. That's me. I, I said that. I did it. No, 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 no. And then I'm saying, that's so blah, 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 blah. And I said, oh, come on. Boy, I want some music. And then I said, no, that's me. Wait, no, that's me. And I'm listening to this thing. And I, it goes for about 10 minutes and goes off. So I go down the dial listening just to hear what's on up there. Radio, to me, is a, as a listener, is a great adventure. I love broadcast listening, going across the dial, picking up little stations in Mississippi. You ought to hear a Mississippi newscast. You ought to hear a description of the news that you just heard on WOR described by a station in Hattiesburg. Then you'd know something about the world. Seriously, you ought to listen to those little whistles in between the big stations. You really should. Then you know about this world. It's much more... I should say, not dramatic, but it's much more real than any editorial in the Post or the Times or the News. Listen. And so I'm going back and forth, and all of a sudden I come across a New England fundamentalist. And he's got that dry New England talk. And he said, friends, tonight I want you all to look inside of yourself. And I'm in this car, whistling through the main woods, <laughs> and the wind is crossing the road. And he's a real fundamentalist. I can just hear it, you know, that, that musty, that smell of any minute now, it's going to be number 16 in the book. And it's just, just that whole atmosphere, you know, that, that itchy atmosphere I used to get in, in Sunday school when I was a kid. You know, that funny, when this lady's up there and she's giving out little cards and we're talking about the Pharisees and I, all that stuff. You know, and... And, and, and I'm, I'm sitting there, and he says, I want you to look inside of yourself. I'm going to ask you a question, an unpleasant question. And I'm waiting. And the little old motor is going... I'm going to ask you an unpleasant question. How do you picture your own personal hell? How do you picture your own personal hell? And I go about 35 feet in the car. You don't really listen, you know, to those guys. You don't really answer these questions in normal life. You say, oh, come on, get some music. Will you, Charlie? What do you kill at? Well, I am in the car alone in the middle of the main woods. 
and this question comes out of the dashboard. How do you picture your own personal hell? And all of a sudden, I said, how do I? And it came back to me. Everybody's personal hell, I'm convinced, is based on the thread of his own life. I'm sure that a doctor's personal hell is, is an eternal operation on an incurable patient with no equipment and a sprained wrist. And the lights keep going out. And she's a hypochondriac. And he wanted to kill her anyway. And it goes on and on. He's operating all throughout eternity on someone he hates the guts of, and here he's working on him, trying to sew him up. This is a personal hell. Very interesting thing. Oh, yeah. Actors think of a personal hell. Believe me, I'm, whenever I'm in a play, I get these crazy nightmares. I remember one nightmare. The nightmare always is not getting there on time. Running, running, running through the streets. You're, you're maniacal. You're scared. You're running. And it's curtain time. It's three minutes after 8.30 already. And you're running. You're sweating. You won't be able to... Personal hell. Well, my personal hell has to do with radio. And I'm going to tell you something about radio you've probably never heard of. You've no, you, this is something I don't think I've ever told on the air. But some time ago, when I first started in the, in the radio business... I worked at a 50,000-watt giant radio station. Now, it was giant only in that it was, a, it was like a, a car that is all motor. It has no seats, has no fenders. It has only four big wire wheels, and it's built for going 6,000 miles an hour. It has no brakes, nothing. And I am working for this radio station, and it's run by an absolute maniac. This guy was, a, was, was, a, was an ego that makes David Merrick seem kind of like uh, one of the Bobsy twins. Yeah. And, and, and he, 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 had, he had a thing, that everything that went on this radio station was his voice. Every person who talked on the station was him. Everything that was on it was him. And in fact, he even had his name mentioned. There was a rule that said, you have to mention his name on every station break. We mentioned his name. How do you like that? 50,000 watts, it covers 14 countries. Far more powerful than any New York station. Why? Well, because of the frequency that it had, because of the antenna system that it had, the geographical system, this radio station covered South America like WOR gets into Queens. Seriously, they had one station break that said, and I quote, the only radio, can you imagine a radio station saying this? This is WKLNUCK, the only radio station heard regularly on Guadalcanal. They meant it, they were. Well, all right, now you got the picture. I am hearing this radio station for years, you know, as a kid, it's got a big name, big thing. And one day, I find myself working for them. Can you imagine yourself walking past the Lunt Fontan Theater every day of your life, and you go to a couple of shows, and one day you're on the stage in the Lunt Fontan, and there's a big ladies' party from Westchester there to hear you? 
Well, old Shep is there, and I'm about 19 years old, see, and I, I'm, 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 I'm open for anything. I'm malleable. I'm ready to go. And it's a hot summer. It's a summer 50 times hotter than this. This radio station was in a hotel. That is a form of limbo. As you know, hotels are not houses. <laughs> They're not homes. There's been millions of people in every room that you're in. People that have died, people that have gone on to become presidents, God knows what is in that room. Have you ever walked into a hotel room and had a sneaking suspicion about what must have gone on in this hotel room over the years? <laughs> you know, oh boy. <laughs> well, and yet it's not really so bad because it's kind of a, you know, it's kind of a limbo. It doesn't count. It's, 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 it's like it's one, it's no man's land, a place where we've declared a moratorium on reality. And this radio station was in a hotel. My job consisted of sitting in a, in a room, a hotel room. Get this picture. That was stripped bare. Marty, there wasn't a thing in it. Can you imagine a hotel room that has had 27 million parties in it? It's now stripped bare. Big one. One of these big babies, you know. They've taken all the stuff out the bureaus and they put a carpet on the floor. They have boarded up the windows and sealed it off with soundproof ceiling. Had double doors that were that kind of squish when you squirt them in, you know. And the air hangs in there dead and heavy. Absolutely sealed off from outside worlds. No air conditioning, by the way. Because the air conditioning made sounds that the microphone would pick up. And so it was not air conditioned. And every night at midnight, I would walk in to this room, and right in the middle of the room is a horseshoe-shaped desk. And over here on the left is a big turntable. Over here on the right is a big turntable. These are big $1,500 magnificent turntables, big babies, you know, great big, about seven heads and filters and all kinds of controls on them. And here's a desk in front of me that was laid up kind of like at an angle with about three little control lights, a couple of switches where I could turn on my microphone, and a little tiny intercom system that was connected to a man who worked with me seven floors away. He was the closest human being I had, and he was my engineer, way down there in a little control room, sealed away from the world, and his only contact was me. And up there in the corner was a the most... Vile! It got so that I, 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 I almost would get hysterical when I would see it. The vilest looking monitor speaker you ever saw. It talked to me all night. Would just talk. Would say things. And I'm sitting there. And at midnight, somewhere off in the distance, the last radio show of the nighttime, early nighttime schedule was over. I never even saw these people. I'd sit there with a pair of earphones. And then I would hear the announcer up there somewhere say, Stay tuned for the all-night country music and western hour. Stay tuned for the hillbilly hit parade. That's me. <laughs> and I'd squinch down. I'd wait for that cue, and then it would come on. A little red light in front of me. Boom! Talk about Kafka. I'm connected with the outside world now, just by a tiny red light. 
And over here, I had set up my theme, steel guitar blues. And that's the way that theme sounded. See, and I'd wait for a second. I'd just wait. Then I would reach over and I'd turn the knob. I'd hold it like this. I'd wait, turn up the gain, and let her go. And she'd go... And my theme is on. A scratchy, rotten, terrible old transcription. I never picked it. Millions of dead announcers had used it before me. Thousands of defeated performers had gone down the drain with this theme. This radio station was on for 30 years before I got there. And there it was, scratching around. And I would say, okay, fellas and gals, it's time now for your hillbilly hit parade jamboree. That little microphone in front of me. Just me and that microphone and that guy seven floors away. Time for your hillbilly hit parade, jamboree. And in front of me, I haven't told you the worst. Directly in front of me was a great big loose leaf notebook with these big glossine envelopes with the big three rings, the two ply envelope glass, transparent. It must have been as thick as two Sears Roebuck catalogs put together. And I would flip them one after the other. Each one is a commercial. Each one. And there were commercials that started out like this. Have you ever envied your friends and neighbors that somehow seem to be able to save, save money in spite of having all kinds of expenses to meet? Well, friends, the Roy A. Cuff, little Jiffy Handy, oh, so much fun jukebox bank is perhaps why you're not saving money. Wouldn't you like to have a jukebox bank? Every time you put a nickel in the jukebox bank, it plays a little tune and lights up and you've saved some money. And I'm thinking of the cretins out there who buy jukebox banks to save money. And then I'd say, and now, here he is. He's coming down the pike himself. It's old Roy Cup himself to sing Hound Dog. Dun, 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 dun. Oh, on comes Roy Cup over here. And Roy Cup is going, I wish After a while, you don't hear it, you know. It's just a long, continuous, jangling whine. And you sense when it's going to end. Yes, sirree, friends. Yes, sirree, that's your old buddy Roy Acuff. He'll be back around on the old jamboree very shortly. But now, friends, I'd like to tell you, for those of you who've got a loved one lying out there in the rain tonight in an unmarked grave because you cannot afford a gravestone, the Rockland Memorial Monument Corporation now makes available to you by mail a guaranteed, time-free, lightning-free, and eternity-guaranteed headstone for all of those members with interchangeable letters. And you can... And they did. That's one of the lines. Well, you know, a guy buries a wife and he gets mad at her later and he takes the things out, you know. And now here he comes, coming down the pike. It's little Jimmy Tub and little Ernie Tub. Now, well, I'll tell you what happened. By about four o'clock in the morning, I'm already completely, hyster not hysterical really, I'm out of my mind. <laughs> 
And it's all coming automatically, just out. And you're sitting there working. It's like working a giant thing. Red light. All right, Fred, hold the cane down yourself. I can't ride the cane into the shadow. Ernest Tubb, Roy Acup. And now here he comes, little cowboy Copus. And cowboy Copus. Hand dog Well... This is not an anti-hillbilly music show. I'm going to tell you, any show that is this kind of droning, endless, endless, escapist pap finally drills its way into the guy's head until eventually he doesn't even know whether he's coming or going. He doesn't even know what he's doing. You think these DJs that go on all day long are saying, are really enjoying that record they're playing? They don't hear it. They don't hear it. You think they know what they, they don't even hear themselves. And it just comes out. Oh, I got to run down. And then I would flip it. Say, friends, all of you who have not, have not taken advantage of the Southern Farmers' fantastic new offer of seven free Bibles and a three-year subscription of the Southern Farmer. One Bible, ladies and gentlemen, has the new bulletproof cover for those of you. <laughs> and it will ward off knife wounds. And, and, and you know, well... You get so that you ad-lib in them. <laughs> and you really do. You know, you just get so that you throw a little thing in once in a while. Like, for those of you who have a two-door car, a three-door car, a four-door, a five-door car, we guarantee. And, and, and uh, <laughs> well, after about, I want to tell you, after about four or five months of this, you don't know what time of day it is anymore. The only contact you have with what you can call as reality is the clock. Can you imagine watching the clock up there? That's the only real thing. And these guys are singing about God knows what. Love? Love. They're singing about what? It's going on and on and on. And millions of people out there are listening. Now you forget that when you're working. You can't even think of it. It seems incredible. And every day I would come in and there would be a big bag of mail. And what's this mail from here? What did I do now? What is this? And someone would say, I heard what you said the other night about Roy Acuff and I. What did Roy Acuff? What did I say? What? Me? Oh, oh, me. Jeez, that's right. I'm on the radio. People hear what I do. They're hearing it. Somewhere in Kentucky, some guy's listening to me sell the jukebox bank. The one that comes on and says, ladies and gentlemen, the Gypsy Fishbait Oil Corporation <laughs> is like to talk to you about a product that in many states is considered illegal. Wandering gypsies wandering over the central plains of Europe many years ago had to learn how to catch fish or die. And you can now have that same secret formula made out of skunk oil, made out of secret ingredients, even today not revealed to the general public. And you can be the first in your neighborhood to have it to come home with loads of fish. Loads of fish with gypsy fish bait oil. Well, after about four or five months of this, I was brought into the studio where they promoted me. They took me off the all-night show. And they had a big live show with real live singers. And it was like living, if you can imagine living in Mammoth Cave, for 35 years and all of a sudden one day they say you're sprung Charlie not only are you sprung you're going to a big party 
Let's go, and you're the star. Well, I popped out of this thing, and I arrived, and of course I'm pale, you know. And my eyes are sort of staring like those fish that live... Oh, another thing I didn't tell you. The lighting in the place. You could not stand flat lighting for... I was on from midnight to 7 a.m. Seven nights a week. And you could not stand the lighting after a while, so they had just two or three dim lights in there. And I got to the point where it was a seance. I've got this thing going, you know, it's, it's a kind of a maniacal attachment to a knob or a button or a wire or a light. And I flip it. I said, what? That Gypsy Fishbait Oil Corporation now makes available to you through the Gypsy Quilt Corporation. 14 pounds of quilt material. For those of you ladies who would like to do the fantastic new cloverleaf design, I flip it over. Well, we got to the point where we were selling nickel-plated guns by mail. For those of you who like target practice easily carried in your watch pocket will kill at 75 yards <laughs> and I'm selling this stuff well after about seven or eight weeks I, I, I can't stand it five months later I get the note and it says dear Gene from the headquarters your work has been excellent you never think of it as being good you know I, I don't imagine a guy who's chopping rocks throughout all eternity he gets a note from the devil. You've been a great rock chopper. <laughs> and, and he says, your work has been good, and we're going to put you on the Ohio River Jamboree. Ohio River Jamboree. Come in for rehearsal. Will I arrive, and who do you think is there? All my old enemies. In the flesh. There's Cowboy Copas standing there. Comes over, he says, glad to meet you. I list you every night. You sure do a good show. He's not a record anymore. He sweats. He walks back over there. Stands over by the piano and spits right in. Over here are the Delmore twins. Over here is the, is the Peyton cousins. Old cousin Peyton there. And in ten minutes, Big Roy Acuff himself is going to arrive can't believe it, you see, because all those years I've been selling Roy A. Cuff wallets. So for those of you Roy A. Cuff fans who'd like to have a genuine Roy A. Cuff wallet that has a picture of Roy A. Cuff inscribed in the secret bill compartment with Roy's actual signature there that you can show your friends and neighbors that you really love Roy. Well, there's Roy. And I come in there, you know, that night, and we, we start to rehearse. And it was like, I can't describe it to you except to say that it was as though somebody has suddenly opened the shades. And all the people who listened were in. Little ladies with lunches, kids that were being sick, fat guys in overalls, and they're the listeners. <laughs> and I am now in life again. And I get up to talk just before the show starts. My first show... And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I, I want to I welcome you here for the Ohio River Jamboree. It's a pleasure to be with you. My name is Gene Shepard. And all of a sudden, there was a gasp from these people, little men with overalls and little ladies. And they started to applaud. They're applauding me. And I, I, I sort of stand back and say, well, thank you. And with that, a little lady down in the front, she says, Mr. Shepard, I always listen to you. I just can't sleep. And every night I listen to you, and you've got the kindest voice. 
And I just love the way you talk about the Rockdale Monument Company. You must be a very nice man to think of people like that out there in the cold, in an unmarked grave. I looked down at her and I said, well, thank you very much, madam. I, <laughs> nothing. <laughs> it's a pleasure. I love doing it, you know. <laughs> and she says, well, we just all listen to you in rabbit hash. And you know, we've been saving up for weeks to come here to see you. And I go back over here and I said, well, now listen, folks, in just a minute, Cowboy Copas is coming in. And he's one of those guys that all night I've been sitting there and it's been going, yeah, 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 yeah. Cowboy walks in and he's got this big fat grin on his face and he's got a big cowboy hat. And he walks in, he says, Howdy, folks, hi! And they all light up like a Christmas tree. And the guy says, Give it, old cowboy, sing it out, boy. Have a hound dog tonight, cowboy. And cowboy says, I'll take that. And they walk back and forth, you know, and it's a great love feast going on. See, Cowboy Copas. And the cowboy loves them. And they love Cowboy. And I'm feeling rotten, you know, all the stuff I've been saying there myself. My mind has been going for years, you know, on how rotten this all is. And Cowboy says, what do you want me to sing, folks? And somebody says, will you please, Mr. Copas, will you please sing one of those lovely hymns that you do so well? And Cowboy then all of a sudden puddles up. Cowboy says, you know, it always does me good. Just does my heart good to, to hear you kind folks ask me for them hymns because they're the only things that really come, really come from the heart. What would you like to hear tonight? All right, I'll do old rugged cross. Well, I'm feeling, you know, I'm just feeling like some terrible cancerous growth here, you know. I am feeling like somehow I am the one... Sub I, I believe that in every human... Every human gathering, every human equation, there is one subversive element. There is one thing that wants to tear it all down. Turn it up. And I am it tonight. I'm standing back over here. And I'm trying to play like I enjoy it. I do. It's, I'm scared. And then suddenly the engineer says, okay, two minutes, let's go. Two minutes, let's go. I got the script. One minute, 30 seconds. And the boys are all standing in the back now with their jugs. They're the, they're the Purina Chick Chow jug blowers. And, and the Colorado cow hands are lined up with their guitars and their mandolins. I walk over to the edge of the stage with my microphone. I look out over the audience, and the minute I looked out over that audience and held my hands up that were going on the air, I could see it was like a church, like a real church. Those eyes are shining. Those little old ladies from Rabbit Hash, Kentucky are at the absolute heart of it all tonight. They're looking at it. And back here is Buddy Ross with his magic guitar and his accordion. And here's little Bonnie Lou who sings seven lonely days and seven lonely nights. We're all ready to go. I look down and I say, all right. Five seconds. Three seconds, folks, and as I talk, my exit gets deeper and deeper. One second, we're out of here. It's time now for the Ohio River Jamboree. And there's a big applause. Give me an applause at that moment, and you'll see what happens. All right, folks, it's time now for the Ohio River Jamboree. Woo! Hey! Woo! Hey!
See what that does? Well, there's a fantastic applause. And with that, I'm in it. I am really in it. And I go over to the mic and I say, and now here he comes to get us underway. It's Cowboy Copas to sing, old Rattler. And he comes out, old Rattler, let's go, gang. Dum, 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 dum. And I knew then, I knew then at that point that I had hit my own private hell. That throughout all eternity, when I go to answer those big questions, and that guy looks down from that fantastic white judgment stand, and old Shep arrives up there. It's been a long life. I figure I've done pretty good. Except that secretly inside I know. Wait till he blows the whistle. We all, not one of us, not one of us, but expects to go to hell. We all do. We'd be disappointed if we didn't. And I'm standing there in front of that big old thing, and he's going to look down, and he's going to say, you know where you're going, don't you? I say, yep. He says, okay, take him away, boys. Five minutes later, I'm going to be seated at an enormous horseshoe-shaped desk. Over here is a turntable. Over here is a turntable. And back of me is a rack with 7,000 worn, gray, cracked records. The red light's going to go on, and I'm going to say, It's time now for your Hillbilly Hit Parade. It's going on throughout all eternity. Let's have a hand. Let's have a big hand. And now we get underway, folks, throughout all eternity with that first tune by Roy Acuff, who sings for you out there, all of you out there. I'm uh, walking down that long, lonely road. Before we go on, we're going to tell you about the Rockdale Monument Corporation, folks. <laughs> and then we'll bring in the Delmore Twins, and the light's going to go on, and the mic is going to go off, and the light's going to go on, and the clock is just going to keep tick, 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 tick. Eternity, eon after eon, 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 eternity. And then once in a while I say, now, come on, let's have a big hand, folks. Let's have a hand for the devil himself. Praise! Speaking of the devil, this is Gene Shepard at the Limelight. We're going to go back to the studio and we'll be back next week at 10.05. Let's have a big cheer for the victims. This is W.O.R.